Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Please, dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come by the Dispatch, you can see my new column today on mask stuff, which I guess I'll talk about a little bit. Um, You can see a great piece by Christian Snyder about uh, how Madison, Wisconsin is trying to go anti-racist. Um, and, uh, you can see all sorts of other stuff. And if you were a paid member of the dispatch, uh, you could read my tirade from last Wednesday, um, on, um, how disgusted I am by so many people. Um, and maybe we'll get into a little of that. So where to begin? Um, um, all right, let's talk about masks. I'm sorry if I sound a little hyper. It's, um, I'm, I'm heavily caffeinated. It's a little later in the morning, so my brain's a little more awake. I just did a radio thing with um, Brian Kilmeade of, of Fox, and so I was shouting for a bit. And, um, and also there's been quite a bit of animal drama here in the Goldberg home. So masks. Uh, you know, look, I mean, if you've been listening to this all this time, you know that I've, I've been anti-maskophilia and maskophobia. Um, I think the people who are trying to make masks into, um, these crazy symbols of tyranny, you know, is that, that woman from the Washington times who wrote that this was that wearing masks like last spring was America's surrender to Asian values and essentially the yellow peril and all, I think that's all crazy nonsense. Um, I think also like in Washington, DC, uh, in general, like, but also like just, that's where I see it the most, the kind of people who invest incredible moral virtue in wearing masks are ridiculous as well. Um, if you're, you know, if you're screaming at people to put on a mask or take off a mask, uh, odds are, um, you're doing it wrong. And that's sort of been my approach to so much of the pandemic is I've tried really, really hard um, to make important distinctions. And this is part of what got, I got into in the Wednesday G file insofar as pandemics are just different. They're different than other, uh, public policy areas. The, the, the place where they have the most similarity are to things like wars, virtually every political theory, um, shy of anarchism, uh, allows for the state to suspend the normal rules to deal with something like a pandemic. This is something the founding fathers believe. The founding fathers went to all sorts of extraordinary measures to fight yellow fever and other pandemics. They gave the president, Congress gave George Washington wide discretion to um, impose quarantines and other measures to to fight uh, you know disease and pandemics. It's 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 one of these things. You know what I wrote liberal fascism, you know, I wrote a lot about this stuff. It's, it's, you know, the, how to put this. So like there's a, the famous book, the sort of the Ur text on a lot of the, a lot of this stuff is crisis and Leviathan by this guy. Um, what's his first name? Anyways, last name is Higgs. It'll come to me. And, um, it's a good book. And he points out that, you know, governments use crises to, um, or the U S government in particular use, uses crises to, uh, as a, as a ratchet to increase their control over our lives and whatnot. And I agree with that. And I think that's a huge problem. Talked about written about this, a huge amount, um, rent control, you know, is a product of, uh, you know, world war two crisis policymaking, uh, paycheck withholding is a product of world war two crisis policymaking. Um, poor Milton Friedman had a heavy hand in that and he regretted it for the rest of his life. Um, 
you can go down a long list of these kinds of you know policies that were implemented during a crisis and then were kept on forever, um, either deliberately or through inertia or both. Um, those are all real issues and they need to be paid attention to, which is one of the reasons why I'm so eager to get back to normal is I don't want to lock in a lot of this nonsense. Uh, I mean, a great example of this is the election stuff. Um, we changed the rules for the elections in the, the 2020 election because traditional voting methods in a lot of states would be too dangerous during a pandemic. I've said this a zillion times. That was reasonable and understandable. What is unreasonable although still understandable, I suppose, is the effort to make a lot of those changes permanent in a post-pandemic world. That's a perfect example of exploiting a crisis um, and trying to make uh, crisis measures permanent for political advantage. And uh, it's why I get so angry when I hear Democrats and progressives talk about how, um, you know, getting rid of 24-hour drive-through voting in Houston and stuff like that is a return to Jim Crow. No, it's a return to this thing called 2018, um, which is a little different than Jim Crow. Um, and uh, so, but all of that said, the important thing to keep in mind here is that, um, yes, progressives and frankly conservatives, but I think progressives are far guiltier of this for, for reasons I'm happy to get into. Um, progressives try to lock in policies during a crisis. You know, that famous Rahm Emanuel thing about how a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. You know, uh, Al Gore used to go around quoting some Chinese proverb that I think is not necessarily a thing. It was, he, you know, it was, it was one of these Chinese proverbs in the way that like, um, um, I remember PJ Rourke talking about how, you know, it takes a village was probably not an African proverb so much as a, um, um, you know, a proverb from the great land of Hallmark Cardia. Um, but it sounded good. And Gore used to always go around saying the Chinese character for, um, crisis is also the character for opportunity. And, um, uh, that's always felt to me a little bit like, you know, the people who get tattoos of Chinese characters and don't know what they say. And it turns out that they'll, you know, um, uh, you know, when they get translated, it's, it's, it's instead of saying, you know, some Zen like thing about inner peace and joy, it's, um, extra spicy wonton soup or I have chlamydia or something like that. Anyway, where was I? Uh, crisis stuff, right? So long history of, of progressives in America, abroad, you know, this is a human thing, um, that, uh, has happened again and again throughout human history of people taking advantage of crises for a political agenda. That doesn't mean the crises aren't real, right? World War II was a legitimate crisis. Uh, people exploited it. People did things, you know, and, and to be fair, some of the things they did, like it was utterly justifiable in the moment for Milton Friedman to push for paycheck withholding. Um, things like the current um, uh, moratorium on, uh, on evictions. You know, you can come down on both sides of it, but when it was implemented, you could make an argument that it was necessary. The question then becomes, when is it no longer necessary and how you get rid of it? But all of those questions have nothing, have no bearing on whether or not the pandemic itself was a crisis. You have to make a distinction between the politics of something um, and the, the politics of a crisis and the crisis itself. Uh, by all means, um, you know, let's keep a close eye on, on how uh, Democrats or Republicans try to exploit um, or politicians in general, that doesn't mean to be a partisan point, how politicians try to exploit a crisis, but simply by trying to exploit a crisis doesn't mean the crisis doesn't exist. And um, there is a long, um, um, there's a long tradition of concern, paranoia, skepticism, you know, de depending on who you're talking about and what the issue is, 
of on both the right and the left of people, again, often for good reason, sometimes not thinking that uh, a crisis was manufactured for precisely these reasons. And I just think that you cannot look at a pandemic that has killed 600,000 Americans as manufactured. Um, uh, you certainly, you know, you know, it sort of smacks a little bit of the conspiracy stuff that, you know, that Trump used to flirt with about how the, how COVID was created by the Chinese to hurt, hurt Trump, which is worse is ludicrous because it, you know, you wouldn't release a bioweapon in your own country and kill your own countrymen. Um, just, uh, do some bizarre carom shot through Italy and other places so that, uh, you could screw with an election in the United States of America, but there is this tendency out there. And so anyway, suspending the rules or bending the rules during a pandemic is, uh, is a legitimate thing to do. And I've tried to stick, stick to that point throughout. Um, and now I can't remember how we got to here. Oh, so the decision by the CDC, and I'm not going to get deep into the, the data nerdery because that's constantly changing and all that. And I don't, you know, I promise there'd be no math here, but as far as I can tell, there's no, as of yet data to support the, this decision to slide back towards masks. And again, I don't think the mask thing is the biggest thing in the world, but you can already see in how this is being covered. You can already see in, in the statements people are putting out that this has a lot to do with the permission with creating a permission structure to slide even further backwards into lockdowns, into not opening schools and all these kinds of things. And I think, I think Tim Carney on the podcast earlier this week said it right. I mean, the, obviously the main reason to get vaccinated is, you know, for your health and the healthy for your loved ones. But, you know, for some people, the real reason to get vaccinated is to get, is to vaccinate, vaccinate yourself against quarantines and lockdowns and the disruptions to, to normal life. And that's why I'm so disappointed in so many people who, um, haven't gotten vaccinated yet. And, uh, and so I'm just sort of done. I mean, I'm done taking these people at, at face value. Um, I, I'm done giving everybody the benefit of the doubt. Every time I look closely at the numbers um, on all this kind of stuff, it is wildly unpersuasive. And, you know, as we were talking about on the Dispatch podcast this week, the argument about the mask stuff basically boils down to two things. Um, and I added a third for the column, but, it, you know, as we were talking about on the podcast, it was. Um, to protect the unvaccinated and to protect children. And um, to be honest, I mean, I'll just be blunt about it. At this stage, now that vaccines are widely available, um, I think it's really regrettable. I think it's foolish. I think it's, in some cases, selfish um, to not get vaccinated. But, you know, I listened to these nurses on, on NBC today and these were not dumb people they're medical professionals and they're all saying how they're not going to get vaccinated and they gave all of their reasons and um i don't agree with their reasons i i suspect that for some of them that if you did if you knock down those reasons they come up with some other reasons but that's fine but these are not these are not fools and they're not you know uh unaware of the risks and the consequences and they don't want to get vaccinated and i see no reason why i should have to put on a mask to protect them and, um, I just, you know, at this point, if you, if you don't want to get vaccinated and you don't want to wear a mask, cause it tends to be that the people who least want to get vaccinated are also the people who least want to wear masks, at least, at least among the sort of the right wing, the red state resistors. I'm not sure that's true on the blue state resistors, but who knows? Um, either way you refuse to get vaccinated. That's on you. That's your choice. As for the kids thing, uh, I am always open to arguments about saving kids' lives. I'm always open to, um, you know, extraordinary measures to protect kids. And I've been arguing for a long time that if this pandemic worked the way the, you know, the 1917 influenza pandemic worked, uh, this country would have been so much more torn apart and the politics would have been so much uglier because the great influenza killed kids in disproportionate numbers, killed kids and young people on disproportionate numbers. And, um, 
uh, Americans do not cotton to that kind of stuff. And thank God that's not the situation we've got here. We've got, um, you know, I've seen various numbers. They're all under 400 of the number of kids who, um, you know, it's like 355 is the one I used in my column, but I saw one from like 363 at some point this morning. Numbers keep changing, but directionally, the point remains the same, is that kids don't die in statistically significant numbers from COVID. And as Matt Markey pointed out in the Wall Street Journal, um, um, we don't have very good data on whether or not some of those, some of the, the 300 or so kids who died from COVID um, had comorbidities or other you know, health conditions that put them in high risk groups, which means that they likely would have again, it's tragic, you know, died from the flu or from a cold or from other things. Um, if you're a healthy kid, everything I've read, and please send me something that tells me I'm wrong. Everything that I've read is that if you're a healthy kid and um, you get COVID, you'll be fine. And this doesn't mean I want to be callous towards kids with, um, you know, immune suppressed systems or other, you know, uh, health conditions, but those kids exist in reality regardless of whether or not there's a pan pandemic and there are just enormous social costs on the other side of the ledger that don't people don't get that people don't pay attention to. I mean, I remember talking to Lyman stone on, on here, you know, a year ago about how the excess deaths were like 25% higher than, um, the COVID deaths. And, um, and he had a bunch of different theories about why that would be it still feels like that's the case. People talk about how the COVID death rate is inflated because, you know, if you, if you have, um, you know, some horrible heart condition and you're 95 years old and you get COVID, you die. And people say, why are you blaming that on COVID? It's maybe not being in terrible shape and being 95. I get the argument, but again, you know, it's the precipitating cause. That's how the statistics are done. Um, but I think for every argument about how the, the stats are inflated, I, think you could also say that the deaths from COVID are undercounted. First of all, if you just talk, you know, economists know how to do this, where they ascribe, you know, dollar values to um, all sorts of things. And um, the, you know, life expectancy is going down, birth rates gone down, um, uh, suicide attempts apparently are going up. It sounds like suicides are going up. ER admittances for all sorts of things are going up. Um, Road rage incidents are going up. Unruly passengers are going up. Uh, overdoses have gone up, you know, hugely. Uh, the the social dysfunction that this thing is causing is 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 huge. And just going by the numbers, given that twice as many kids die every year in car accidents, and we don't ban kids from cars, I just don't find the kids' argument all that persuasive. If there's new data to dispute that, by all means, I am open to changing my mind on that. And then the, like the third argument, which you only hear in sort of rarefied circles or hinted at occasionally in these cable news discussions, is that we need to prevent, we need to get the herd, herd uh, immunity so that we can prevent this thing from mutating further and perhaps becoming so dangerous, so mutated, so, you know, um, that it, uh, it can defeat the vaccine. And I think that is an entirely valid concern. It's a serious concern. It's a real concern. It's why I think everyone everywhere should get vaccinated as quickly as possible. Yada, yada, yada. The thing is, we could vaccinate every single American tomorrow. Um, and that still wouldn't foreclose the possibility that that happens. Because look, like the, uh, the Delta variant was first found in India. Um, there's this variant down in Peru. There's, um, there was a Brazilian variant. Um, it's always funny to me how you can call all the variants by their geographic place names, except the one that started all, which was the Wuhan virus. Um, but be that as it may, the idea that you're not going to have mutations of this thing in, you know, Nigeria or Bucharest or Kiev or, or Argentina is just ludicrous. It's fanciful. It's going to happen no matter what. And unless you're going to ban global travel, um, this is just something we're going to have to keep an eye out for. And so I just found the whole thing, you know, so dispiriting, so, um, 
frustrating. I, you know, I'm about to take my kid to call, to start college. She got so screwed out of her senior year. She got um, a big chunk of her junior year was ruined by COVID. All these kids have all this stress and anxiety, and um, and I just look and I just don't see it as being necessary. And um, and so the only thing I saw so that was basically a rehash of the column. But the one thing I'll add is I, I'm starting to hear all these people talking about how um, Biden's doing this for his own political benefit and that they want to get back into, you know, pandemic fear mongering mode because it helps them and keeps the money flowing. I think Ben Dominic said something like that on special report. I just don't buy it. I mean, I don't buy it. I do have some sympathy for the idea that a bunch of public health experts um, and public health officials really like being in charge of everything and um um and they live in a milieu and they work in a milieu where all they do is hear from people who have um a a sort of monistic vision of what their responsibilities are and as 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 longtime listeners know i do not like monism or monism which basically is boils down to one thingism um, you know, the, you, if you're Rachel, Rochelle Walensky or Anthony Fauci, all your peers are focused on the one thing, which is defeating coronavirus or defeating the pandemic, however you want to put it. And, um, and they find objections to the, as the crow flies policymaking, um, that they're in favor of is, is inherently illegitimate. And you can get into a kind of group think where, um, you know, sort of like, you know, Colonel Nicholson and a bridge in a river Kwai, you just get tunnel vision towards your goal. I think there's a lot of that. I think there's, you know, I, I still remember what Washington was like when the arms control and, you know, uh, uh, Soviet, uh, cold war experts were the most important people in Washington and how, you know, how much they tried to, um, bend all issues or so either bend all issues towards their stuff or subordinate all issues towards their stuff. doesn't mean that they were evil or that they were acting in bad faith. It's just that whatever you do in life, you're going to tend to invest a lot more importance in it than, um, something that you don't do, which is one of the reasons why bureaucracies become so pernicious is that if your entire job description is, um, and really, and to some extent, your identity is built around a pile of a pile of papers in front of you. You are going to insist that dotting every I and crossing every T of the paper in front of you is vitally important. And that's one of the reasons why you get this sort of sclerosis of bureaucracies. So I think that that like the public health officials, I think the power has gone to their head to a certain extent. I see it. You can see in some of these people the glee that they have. Um in, you know, in, 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 in driving public policy. But as a matter of politics, I think this is incredibly poisonous and fraught politics for Joe Biden. I mean, the idea that somehow going back into lockdowns and mask mandates is good for Joe Biden politically just strikes me as bizarre. Um, you know, uh, you can see this in, you know, there, uh, Josh Krauschauer tweeted out this thing the other day about, I want to say it was in St. Louis where the city council in a district, you know, in, in, in the city that voted overwhelmingly for, for Biden, um, and in precincts people voted overwhelmingly for Biden. They nonetheless came out against mask mandates and all this kind of stuff. Cause people, regardless whether or not you have a D or an R after your name, people are fed up with all of this stuff. And if you think that's good for Joe Biden politically, to do more remote schooling just because it makes the teachers unions happy. I, I just, I just don't buy it. Um, um, I mean, you, you want the teacher unions money for sure. And the democratic party is horribly addicted to teacher union money. Um, but you also want the votes of all of those parents and, um, pissing off, you know, tens of millions of parents is is not smart politics and shutting down the economy right as it's getting as it's taking off is not smart politics and taking the one issue uh getting us out of the pandemic and handling the pandemic well and handling vaccines well and calling that into question is not smart politics for joe biden um 
So to the extent that he's doing this stuff, I think it's either just a straight-up mistake. I think I guess there are three possibilities. One, they know something that we don't know, and shame on them for not sharing it. Right? They should share every bit of data at this point. It's too late to be coy. It's too late to get into noble lie BS. It's too late to think that the American people can't handle the information. People have been going to school on this pandemic crap for a year and a half now. Um, no, the trust is gone. Give all the information or don't do anything at all because um, I think that's nonsense. But you know, maybe they have some information that we don't know that is causing all of this. Um, uh, maybe they're just simply making a terrible mistake, which I think is probable. Or they're responding to the bubble that they're in, which I think there's got to be at least some truth to, you know, in the same way, you know, when, when, uh, when this point I've been making over and over again on this podcast about how democratic politicians listen to people, these elites who speak the right code, who know the right shibboleths. And so you have these elite politicians who think you're supposed to say things like birthing person or Latinx or, um, you know, intersectionality and all these kinds of things when normal Americans don't know jack about any of that kind of stuff. Um, the same can apply for public policy stuff. They could be just simply in a, in a bunker surrounded by people who all see fighting the pandemic as this world historic thing and the eyes of history are upon them and they're overreacting in the wrong way. But regardless, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, Biden may get out of this just fine, depending on how the next, weeks or months go, but the idea that like he wouldn't want instead to have um, the pandemic shrink in the rearview mirror behind him, be able to take credit for a heroic job of doing, of getting people vaccinated and having the GDP numbers be the story of the day, I just think is, is, is a, a weird theory and I'm hearing it all over the place. Um, all right, enough with all that. So, uh, I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds and all this, but there was this, um, there was this piece a couple of weeks ago that I only recently, you know, finished um, over at the Bulwark um, by this uh, professor at AU named Laura Field um, called "What the Hell Happened to the Claremont Institute." I think it, it's too long for sure, um, and. It goes down some rabbit holes that I don't necessarily think were necessary or, or agree with. Um, but I think it's worth, if you're, if you're interested in this stuff, I think it's worth reading and I find it generally persuasive about the indictment of what's happened at Claremont. Certainly some of the people that, uh, the sort of executives at the Claremont Institute and some of the arguments that the Claremont, you know, folks, including at the American mind make are, uh, Either the people or the arguments or both. Some of them. Some of them are these people I still guess are friends of mine, but um, some of them who I don't know, like, uh, you know, Jack Posobiec um, and, you know, this Darren Beatty, Jack Wad, um, and a few others. Uh, I don't know these guys. I don't want to know these guys. And I find them repugnant and reprehensible. And I find it tragic that Claremont is getting involved with them and defending them and making some of these people, you know, fellows or, um, um, you know, adjuncts or scholars. I think it's just, it, 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 I find it heartbreaking. Um, and again, you know, some of these people really don't warrant a lot of attention and I'm not going to give it to them. This BD guy who I keep forgetting about, uh, is apparently truly obsessed with me. Um, and, um, there's this, I, I completely forgotten and I was reading the piece and I looked it up and Forgotten that this is the guy in the, there's this, there's this, uh, alt-right, um, sort of racist jackwad, um, what's his name? Garrison, who does these political cartoons and they're grotesque, or at least a lot of them are grotesque and I don't think they're well done. Um, but they are sort of revealing of a certain kind of like the griper id. And, um, there's one that has me with my butt crack showing as I'm, wearing like a dunce cap and a goucher college jacket, um, you know, cleaning the feet of this bear, this beady guy who's like reading Heidegger and all the great philosophers or actually I want to say all the great philosophers, a bunch of German philosophers, if, if memory serves 
are all snickering and 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 looking admiringly at BD. And it's just crazy stuff. I mean, it's the kind of thing that um, you know, you know, it reminds me of there's that scene in Gross Point Blank where um uh John Kuzak is trying to explain to this old bully from high school that there is no you and me. You know, it's kind of like I don't know, I don't have to get into details and all that, but it's kind of like uh, the great Cornell Harvard rivalry that everybody at um, Cornell knows about, and nobody at Harvard does. Is I, you know, I, I don't know this BD guy from Adam, and I don't care. And um, I think he's the guy who's also behind um, the the ridiculous lie that the one, January sixth stuff was a FBI staged thing. I mean, he's he's a buffoon. Um, um, anyway. You should read it. I think it's interesting. I think it's it's a sad read, and you don't have to agree with all of it. Um, and you know, there are people who want to make a thing about. It's weird. There are there are two kinds of people out there who know what the dispatch and the bulwark are. There are people who want to make it a some sort of great existential battle between the two publications, or they want to lump us entirely together. And um, I I'm not interested in either of those things. Um, so I got no problem telling people to take a look at it. Um, but there's one point that field makes, you know, she, she alludes to that I think is sort of interesting and worth talking about for a second. <clears throat> it's, you know, there's this whole West coast, East coast Straussian thing, and I'm not going to get, I don't want to piss off either faction or people who care deeply about this kind of stuff, all 12 of them. And, um, but I think as a general rule, you can say that the East Coast Straussians are more sort of, um, you know, they're more interested in classics, in sort of uh, sort of stereotypical philosophy qua philosophy, um, the sort of Harvey Mansfield people. Um, they care more, you know, they're they're more focused on scholarship about Socrates and Plato, or even Nietzsche and Heidegger and that kind of stuff. And the West Coast Straussians, again, speaking with a broad brush, because some of these, I have friends and acquaintances in both camps. Um, the West Coast Straussians are much more into the American founding um, and particularly the Jaffaites, uh, this guy, Harry Jaffa, um, who's the, the ideological inspiration in many ways of the Claremont Institute into the, um, the statesmanship of Abraham Lincoln. And, um, and, and all that is to the good. And and look, I've learned a lot from the Claremont crowd. Uh, I was, you know, a lot of my early anti Woodrow Wilson stuff comes from that world. People, I, I don't know if they know, but like, you can find it. I wrote the when Claremont came out with the tenth anniversary edition, uh, a collection of their essays on the tenth anniversary of the founding of the CRB. Um, maybe it was the fifteenth, whatever. But I wrote the review for it in the Claremont Review of Books. In part because, you know, uh, Charles Kessler and all these guys knew what a huge fan I was of the publication. I was one of its biggest boosters. They would use my name in ads. Um, and I stand by that at the time. It's like for years, it was like, you know, my second favorite. And I wrote about this in the in National Review all the time. It was my second favorite publication after National Review. And which makes me so sad to see some of the stuff that's coming. But one of the places, I think even in that review, I should go back and look at it, um, that I always sort of had a, a a fundamental disagreement with the with the Claremont crowd was on this trying to reduce conservatism to this narrow uh, fundamentalism about founding, about constitutionalism, um, or even about Lincoln. Um, which is not to say that I. Don't think that stuff was. I didn't think that stuff was hugely important and valuable, and that I definitely wanted to be part of the bedrock dogma of the right. But I always felt that the the way they did it um, excluded too much. It's not that it shouldn't have been included; it's that it excluded too much, and that in fact there is no real hard, permanent, singular one thing fundament to conservatism, even American conservatism. There are a bunch of necessary but not sufficient components to it. There are some things, you know, it's like I said um, the other day on here when I was talking to Dan McLaughlin, 
and as I wrote in my first book, um, American conservatism is about more than classical liberalism, but an American conservatism that doesn't want to conserve classical liberalism isn't worth conserving. And I believe that passionately. I believe that more today than ever before, in part because I look at the changes that we're seeing from people, you know, in part from people in Claremont world. And it just strikes home to me how vital it is that the conservatism hold on to that. Because, but we should hold on to classical liberalism, not just because classical liberalism is right as a philosophical or legalistic or principled approach to things, but also because it is, it is essential and woven into Western and American culture at its core. And you can't, you could, you could, you could dismiss constitutionalism. You could throw it out the window. You could throw out all the a priori, you know, uh, you know, abstract principles of liberalism that, um, a lot of the nationalists, you know, like Yoram Hazoni, he hates this idea of turning political philosophy into a series of axio, you know, axiomatic principles and all these kinds of things. And it's much more rooted in a people and a history and all that. You can do all that. That's fine. Throw all that stuff out. You're still left with the fact that Western and particularly Anglo-American and, and in specifically American culture are deeply and profoundly in their blood and soil. In their, in, in, in their imagination and in their aspiration, classically liberal. There are other things going on. You know, there are other aspects to American culture and American character than simply cla classical liberalism. But the ideas that give, that put, you know, uh, meat and or there's flesh and, and sinew around the, 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 the sterile bone of, theoretical classical liberalism are these notions that are inherent in our traditions about fair play, about, um, you know, the sovereignty of the individual about due process, um, you know, about, about what it means to live in a just and fair society. That stuff is so bound up with classical liberalism that you could, you could burn the constitution tomorrow and it would still be, a huge part of our culture, a huge part of what it what distinguishes being an American from a lot of other um, nationalities, and um, uh, so anyway, I think you know the constitutionalism stuff is all really really important, but there was a certain way in which the Claremont guys kind of reduced. And I think Laura, I think Field says it in the essay. She might have said it in an interview I listened to. Um, reduces sort of the founding into a kind of myth-making and poetry rather than dealing with it as a real historical event where there were enormous trade-offs and compromises and some of them were regrettable but necessary and some of them were were um brilliant and wonderful but maybe not necessary um and that it was part of the just the the hurly-burly of the moment and that there's nothing wrong with questioning some of this stuff because once you start painting this stuff with sort of gauzy, poetic, um, larger than life, you know, this is, you know, you know, treat Philadelphia in 1776 or 1789, like Valhalla and you cannot question the gods or, or like Asgard or whatever. Um, you get into problems. And I think that was in some ways when I, when I go back and think about some of this stuff, that was sort of the gateway drug to, I think how, Claremont became so smitten with nationalism and could find itself so um, morally compromised by its support for Trump and all of these other things. And, um, and, and when I say they were morally compromised by their support for Trump, I mean that in a way that's, you know, specific to the Claremont Institute because, you know, these were guys who basically they only had two lodestars. Um, I don't know if you're allowed to have two lodestars, but they were they were twin lodestars of the importance of statesmanship and the importance of fidelity to the Constitution and the principles of the founding, um, as expressed by Abraham Lincoln. And if you can connect the dots between those lodestars and wanton apologetics for Donald Trump and all the other things that 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 
Claremont has gotten itself into? Well, that's good, good for you. I just don't see how those dots can be connected. All right, I have no idea how long I've gone here, and I have miles to go before I sleep, but um, what else to talk about? Um, oh, so I saw, I talked about this on Glop. You might want to listen to the latest episode of Glop. It was fun. We got into the pressing issue of scrotal torsion and whirling dervishes. Um, but uh, I should say issues. Um, but I just saw, you know, was it yesterday, news broke that Scarlett Johansson is suing Disney because Disney um, um, released Black Widow on streaming um, at the same time as releasing it in theaters and her compensation was partially predicated on box office results and obviously streaming uh, detracts from that. And I I haven't read all the stories about it. I certainly haven't looked at her contract. I haven't talked to any lawyers about all this kind of stuff. So I, I could be proven wrong or whatever, or it could turn out that her lawsuit is frivolous. But I I thought there was sort of, um, I thought it was very interesting that Disney decided to come out of the gate as a legal strategy, trying to turn Scarlett Johansson into a bad person for her lawsuit as a cold, uncaring person who wasn't willing to cut Disney some slack for its decision to you know come to the aid and uh, and assistance of all of these americans dealing with the pandemic and needing to stream because they didn't want to go to theaters and why can't you be in you know we're all in this together and why can't you um shut up about your you know being robbed out of your compensation and um to me that's a sign that there's got to be some merit to the lawsuit because, uh, you know, that's a really low and kind of nasty argument to make that you wouldn't need to make if you're, if the law was completely on your side. And given how Disney has reaped enormous profits from the pandemic, or at least that's my impression, um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of funny way for Disney to start start talking about this about how you know disney is the friend of the people and scarlett johansson is the is the greedy running dog capitalist who cares more about her bottom line um it kind of reminds me and i I want to be very clear about this i have no idea you know uh, regnery publishing has gone through um enormous changes over the years and i don't follow this stuff nearly as closely as i used to but you know i used to work in my mom's literary agency and my mom was for a time the most not only the most successful conservative literary agent, but for a little while, at least the only serious conservative literary agent. And, um, she used to have, you know, similar problems with Regnery back in the day. Again, this was 25 years ago for all I know. My impression is it's a much more professional operation now, but back in the early days of the conservative movement or the earlier days, I don't know, you know, it wasn't that long ago. Um, you know, there were a lot of institutions that monetized conservatism that expected um, that everybody would sort of give everybody else the benefit of the doubt because we're all on the same team. And a lot of that still goes on today. Um, uh, you know, we find this, you know, at the dispatch that sometimes, you know, when you're when you're out hunting for talent, particularly in areas, you know, outside of like strictly journalistic or editorial stuff, you know, um, it's, it's, you know, you have people who are really prominent within the conservative movement and successful in the conservative movement for their technical expertise, but really can't, um, you couldn't compete with people in the absolute marketplace. Um, and so they specialized to deal with, um, with conservatives. And, um, it's sort of like that Crowder guy calling himself a comedian uh, maybe he's really funny in the world of sort of uh, sort of MAGA and Trumpified conservatives, but you know I, I don't see him as a like you know on the same playing field as like Dave Chappelle or something like that. Anyway, uh, Regnery used to have like these clauses in their contracts where they would um, you know cut companies or outlets within the Regnery universe, these special rates 
on book sales that would screw the author. Um, but since it was all within the same P&L statement, essentially, of the corporate overlords, Regnery came out fine, um, and the author got screwed. And when, you know, like my mom would complain about this stuff to Regnery, they were like, look, we're all on the same team here. We're all fighting the libs and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, my mom would be like, no, no, I'm fighting for my clients to get all the money they're entitled to. And um, if you want to sacrifice for the greater cause of conservatism and all that, then you eat the losses and give my client what they're owed. And, um, and that kind of feels like what Disney is trying to do here with ScarJo is um, to make it seem like they're the white knights doing everything that's best for America during this, ter- this terrible time, sort of like the CEO of Schooner Tuna and, and Mr. Mom, and, um, and want to make her into the bad guy for for asking for what she's entitled to. So until I, until like Rob Long or John Pedoritz actually do my homework for me and explain why um, it's not that I'm, I guess I'm on team ScarJo. Um, and uh, I guess that's it. I got to figure out how to write the G file today. Cause I have another job interview lunch thing um, that I gotta, I gotta deal with. And you know, the, the, the business side of dispatch is eating up more and more of my time these days. And, um, you know, I'm grateful for it. These are signs of growth. These are signs of success and all that kind of thing. But, you know, I curated my life for like 20 years to avoid having to deal with a lot of humanity, um, and, 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 and talk about money and all these kinds of things. So it's a bit more stressful for me than, you know, it might be for some other people. Um, and I do going to say, you know, it's also, I mean, like I get, you know, people in particular have been special jackasses towards me on places like Twitter of late and also an email and all that kind of thing. And that's fine, whatever. Um, but it's, it's funny, you know, I was basically off Twitter for the most part all of last week, or I think that was last week. Anyway, when I was gone and, um, uh, and I would check in every now and then and, you know, I get all this, you know, it's so telling that you haven't said anything about this yet. And I was like, you know, I mean, I didn't say anything because I don't want to respond to that garbage, but, um, I was, you know, I was hanging out with my daughter or my wife or my friends on, you know, vacation. And like my idea of being on vacation isn't being mad on some jackass's timetable, um, about something that I'm not even sure I should be mad about. And the more time I spent away from Twitter, the more I, kind of didn't want to go back to it and I'm not leaving Twitter, but I'm on it less. I look at the re- replies to a lot of my stuff less. Um, I have, um, more contempt than I used to for the people who try to like, you know, turn me or David French or the dispatch into something. It's not to fit their own BS narrative about something or to monetize it in some way. Um, you know, when I look at people like Charlie Kirk, you know, going viral, saying idiotic things about Simone Biles, um, or the, the, that, you know, ridiculous, um, I'm trying not to curse person at, uh, in Bannon world. I can't remember his name, but he's the co-host of like the war room, whatever, calling the cops who testified, um, um, America's Stasi. Uh, you know, it's like, why do, why do I even want to engage in this thing? And it's one of the reasons why I kind of enjoy how angry some people get about me posting pictures of dogs, um, my dogs. Um, but what was I going to say about all this? Um, um, oh, so just anyway, you know, I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it's amazing to me. And this has been something that's been true to one extent or another for 20 years. How, me, how so many people think that they are experts on what my motivations are or why I haven't responded on their timetable to something. And, and I think it gets to this thing about um, following politics as a form of entertainment. You know, when you watch a movie, you know, there's the whole Chekhov's gun thing, you know, which is obviously from plays. That if you, see, you know, Chekhov says, if you see a gun in the first act, it's got to be used in the third act. I'm really good at watching movies according to that kind of thinking about like, oh, they wouldn't have introduced 
this if they weren't planning to come back to it later or there's no way they would have cast what's at right now seems like such a minor role with that recognizable an actor unless later that person's going to turn out to be really important I'm, I'm, I'm good at doing that stuff it's a sign of how much of my life i've wasted watching movies and tv it's not i'm not super proud of it but i'm really good at that the thing is is that when you're watching a movie a movie or a tv show um you're aware that the amount of the running time of the product is a finite resource and that every frame is there for a reason every scene is for a reason every piece of dialogue is for a reason every every prop every uh, plot change happens to lead to some sort of conclusion and sometimes you can guess wrong but it 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 means that everything on the screen to one extent or another is relevant at minimum as a red herring right but often usually most things don't have red herrings in them and i i find more and more and it's much more recognizable when you've been away for a little while that people follow politics but really follow things like twitter like like they're watching a movie where, oh, this person hasn't been on three for three hours. That must be they don't know how to respond to this or um, that somebody got the better of them here. And in reality, that person has gone to the movies with their kid or that person has to go off to a lunch to interview somebody for a social marketing director position or something like that. And um, uh it fuels my contempt for a lot of these people who think that they're greater experts on my life than me, who's the person who's living it. And I can't remember why I got into this, but I, I did. And so there you have it. So anyway, um, I got to go do this thing and then go to lunch and then go write the G file. Um, and I have, a, I have some very exciting, I have at least one extremely exciting guest. I'm very excited about it. Um, coming up on the remnant, we're working out dates right now. Um, I don't think anybody will guess it, but we'll see. And but I don't, I don't want to blow it by revealing it too soon, or if I reveal it, then somebody else will come pounce. But I'm very excited about an upcoming guest coming. And just so you know, mid-August, I drive my daughter to school, to college. We're turning into a cross-country trip again, and. Um, I will try to hit all of my schedules, but we may have some subs come in to deal with some stuff, but I will certainly be here next week. And I think the week after and, um, um, and with that, I'll see you next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.